Welcome to the Time Out Podcast with Tony McGettigan. Because we all need a little time out from life. Well, folks, you're very welcome to episode number 40 of the Time Out Podcast uh, with me, Tony McGettigan. And uh, I'm very pleased to say that my guest today is a man needing little introduction. He's been a public figure for many decades due to the, his involvement in political life. He's uh, been a councillor, a TD, a minister, an MEP and Lashkin Korla. And it gives me great pleasure to invite him on to the podcast today. So, Pat the Cope Gallagher, you're very welcome to the Time Out Podcast. Thank you very much, Tony, and uh, I'm delighted that you've given me the opportunity to uh, have this interview. Yeah, always glad to chat to you, to Pat, and uh, I'll start off by the way I start off every interview, is asking, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, I'm out of politics now since uh, February of last year, and uh, I still use my time uh, doing some work for people who still contact me, and there are many of those, and I... Uh, walk quite a lot, which I believe is is good at this time yeah. uh, of the uh, uh, COVID nineteen. I think mental health is vitally important, and I do at least five k every day. And last year, the calendar year twenty twenty, I never missed one day from the first of January to the thirty first of December, and that includes the uh, general election period. And this year, I've started off again on the 1st of January, and I've never missed a day. That's impressive, uh, Pat. I'm nearly, I'm nearly obsessed with it now, Tony. And good of course, I, it's good. It's very good. I go away every morning uh, at about 5 to 8, and I get the local radio, and I get Morning Ireland, and I'm back before uh, 9 o'clock, maybe a bit later, later on Saturday and Sunday. But I do it every single day, and it's as important to me now as it is having my breakfast. Better than any tablet, uh, Pat. <laughs> No question about it. And I would advocate it to anyone, young and old. Uh, and it doesn't have to be at a fast pace. Get out, walk. And particularly during the summer, it's beautiful to get out. And I go out around the Cope Mountain here where you have beautiful. river and lake and forest and uh, the birds. Listen to the birds in the morning, uh, the sun rising. It's just something else. And if someone said that to me 10 years ago that I would do that, uh, I wouldn't believe them. But now I have advocated this to, to everyone. It's the best medication that you can get. Well, we're never too late to change your ways, Pat, in the sense of taking up things. And it's certainly a very uh, positive thing to do, getting in that's fair play to you, because uh, you put myself to shame, Pat, 5K every day in last year, and you're off to a good start this year. And um, it's, it is uh, vitally important. But just to talk, Pat, about, um, obviously you mentioned there you're out of politics uh, a while now. It must have been taking a bit of getting used to you for you, Pat, because you're, you're used to sort of commuting between, you know, we're going to carry Finn to Dublin quite a bit. Yeah. And how have you adjusted to that, Pat, this time around? Well, I would be telling lies if I were to say that it didn't come as a shock. It certainly came as a shock uh, to me because I um, uh, worked very hard uh, throughout my lifetime and I had a great campaign uh, in 2020, I covered the entire area of the county that was uh, allocated to me. Uh, but of course, there was a change in the last week when uh, 
the votes went to went to Sinn Féin and just not here in Donegal but throughout all of the country and I was the one that was uh, caught short there by a mere uh, few hundred votes uh, but now that I'm that I'm out uh, I spend a lot of time uh, being available to uh, people who contact me and there are many many people who still contact me and of course I have the experience I have the contacts and I'm only too happy to be able to help them uh, and I do that and uh, I don't I don't regret it I could never uh, change my phone and not make myself available uh, the people of uh, the West Donegal of Donegal of Connacht Ulster uh, were always very good to me and elected me on many many occasions and now uh, while I'm out of politics and I have more time uh, not having to commute between uh, Carrickfin and Dublin or to Strasbourg or Brussels as I did for many years uh, then I have more time to do that and I'm always available to assist um, people and uh, I'm happy to do it. Well, you've plenty of sounds for me, Pat, like you're a man that you definitely, when I've met you, you strike me like a man that likes to keep yourself busy. And um, I would say as well, Pat, that knowing you, I would say you're, you're, you haven't given up the fight yet about a, a potential return in the future. Oh, well, that's, that's, that could be a long way down the road. Yes. But I am happy. I get great personal satisfaction. Uh, in public life, uh, if there are issues that you can debate in public or take credit for in public, uh, but they're the one-to-one with people, and I always considered myself good uh, dealing with individuals and uh, looking after their interests. Just now, as I do it, no public statements, just a one-to-one with people, and uh, I get great satisfaction when I can assist them and resolve uh, problems yeah. and, of course, give them advice. Well, when you're, when you're doing that all your life, Pat, I suppose it's very hard to change now, even though it's, a, it's in a different uh, mean, means like, but you're still helping people. I knew, I knew nothing uh, else all my life. Uh, going back some years ago when I started first, every Saturday and Sunday there was clinics uh, throughout the electoral area or, or the constituency. And that was necessary then because people didn't have phones. Uh, not alone mobile phones, or they didn't have social media where they can contact you now uh, through through many means. So I had to go out throughout the constituency, Saturday, uh, Sunday, uh, come back, uh, and those days had to write up uh, notes on all the issues that were raised. So I knew nothing else, but prior to that, well, it was in the fish business. It was a seven-day week as well. So no, nothing else. But I must say that I enjoyed it. And I was very fortunate to have good health all those years. Yeah, it gave you a sort of foundation into what you went on to later in life. And just to, to start off, Pat, I suppose not many people, well, most people around here will, will, will know it, I'm sure. But you were uh, born in Bordenport. I was. My uh, mother and father were living in Dunlow. On the main street, just as you go into the uh, main area of the cope, below the archway, and uh, my mother was expecting me, uh, Paddy the cope, uh, and his wife Sally the cope lived there as well. So uh, Sally the cope was was dying, and um, my mother was shipped off to to Burtonport, where she came from. She was Campbell from the pier in Burtonport. Uh, so that's the reason that I was born in, in Burtonport. But of course, shortly afterwards, uh, when my grandmother died, Sally the Cope, uh, where it was back to Dunlow and, uh, I was reared there on the main street 
and uh, spent uh, most of my life there until the COP decided that they were going to do some major renovation. So uh, it was then that um, we built the house on the Karma Road and, and moved out there. But I, I loved the, the main street. Yeah, fond memories I'm sure too, Pat, you have when you look back at them days. And it's a different than we see today, but uh, the main street is still, it's, it's still, even though with all this, uh, the effects of the virus, we've seen so many things closed down. The, the main street still hasn't lost that special uh, sort of sense it has, Pat. Well, it was it was special to me because uh, there were so many families living on the main street at that time, and uh, we uh, it was a very safe place, and, and it still is, of course. But we had one key of the front door, and that key was always in the door, seven by twenty four by three hundred and sixty five. Uh, we we we. Um, and that was the same for every other uh, family uh, on the main street. But now there aren't as many as many people living there now. But when I then, uh, I was very sad leaving it to go to the Carmore Road. But then when I got out there, uh, I must say I enjoyed my, my years there as well. I suppose, yeah, it's just a bit of an adaption process, Pat. I was there. I was there living with my mother and, and Sally until in my early years in politics. I was there when I was elected to the council, elected to the Dal and uh, as a Minister of State, and then sometime after that, in 89, I, I met Anne, my wife, we got married, and that's the first time I moved out of the family home to Minmore for a while, and then back to the Guido Road, where I'm living now. That's right, yeah, it's a lovely place you have there on the Guido Road, uh, Pat, I have to say. Talk to me, Pat, about uh, your involvement with the fishing, because yeah, the Cannon Factory has uh, a lot of meaning to you. It has, of course. But first of all, when I was growing up uh, as a young lad, I worked in the cope during the uh, during the summer. But then, as I grew older, I went to work with uh, the Campbells and Uncle mine, James Campbell and uh, cousins John Campbell and Paddy Campbell, who were in the fish business. And each summer, I worked uh, with them uh, in Burtonport. Uh, and then, when I finished college, I uh, was offered a job with them managing their uh, uh, factory. And they had one in Burtonport and one in Kelly Beggs, where we did salmon, uh, herring, uh, where we did lobster and um, uh, other uh, species of fish. Uh, so I worked with them all those years. Then after that, I was working with them both in Kelly Beggs and Burtonport. And they then decided to uh, consider the building of a canning factory. See, that In those days, uh, the fish were shipped out. They were either salted or frozen. But we wanted to add value to the fish and create more permanent employment over the 52 weeks. And John Campbell decided that he would embark on the canning of uh, both herring and mackerel. And we had various meetings with uh, John West, who... Uh, marketed uh, the fish. Uh, we then built the factory and mean more, and it's still going well. John in his days and now uh, Michael Bonner's family, Carmel and their family are running it now, and it's provided very um, long-term sustainable uh, employment there. So I must say I enjoyed that. That was um, yeah. a period for us. It's great to see there, though uh, it's been there for many years, as you say, and gives a lot of employment to people locally, and you must be very proud of that, Pat, too. Yeah, I, I must say I enjoyed it. It was um, it was a great period moving from doing just the primary processing and shipping them out directly to the added value, and it's it's great yeah. that it's still it's still been very successful, and uh, many locals have worked there 
uh, over over many years. But I also uh, have enjoyed my time in Burtonport and in Kelly Beggs, and even uh, and we went to the Isle of Man because there weren't many herrings here during the summer. So while they were off the Isle of Man, we went there and we processed there. We went to Dunmore East, we went to Castletown Bear, we went to Galway. So we were very active, uh, and I must say I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed that period uh, of my life. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, when uh, I spent uh, a few winters in, in Dunmore East processing uh, fish myself, and then, of course, an opportunity came to run for the council in 79. And, of course, I uh, stood back somewhat from the fishing then uh, and got involved full-time in politics. Yeah, but definitely great memories there for you of the fishing, Pat, and uh, definitely it's, uh, it's fantastic to see what has brought D- Dunlow. Uh, Pat, just to talk about the N56, of course, which is a project that you were involved in as well, are involved in, the new road coming into Dunlow, there from Cloughley to, to Dunlow. Uh, of course, the road was sort of being restructured. Pat, can you give the sort of reasonings behind this, Pat? Well, first of all, the N56 was... Uh the main road out of West Donegal into uh, the south of the county and onwards then. And, uh, of course, I had been trying for years and years to have uh, major repairs carried out to that road. And, of course, the, the worst part of it was known as the Minicarn Bends at Patrick Neil Duffy's. That's right. So when I was appointed to the Department of Environment and the Department of Transport, uh, I set that as a goal to have major works carried out there. And uh, the work commenced around the Minicarn Bends and went straight across to that uh, street. Uh, heading for, for Madava. And once that started, and I was told when I met the senior officials, I wasn't happy with the first allocation, uh, but I was told that if we start this job, that it will continue. Now, I do know, uh, and I get the point that you're making, there were some works carried out, and it would appear now that um, all that's been uh, dug up and yeah. there's road has been realigned. But I think it's the amount of money that was spent on it uh, would be small in comparison with the millions that have been spent on it now. Uh, but when that money was spent, uh, I believe that the uh, official dumb uh, wasn't of the view that substantial funds would become available. It was done in good faith, uh, but I think that we shouldn't allow that to cloud over the major job that's been done there now, started in uh, from Balmacarrick uh, then uh, and round the Guibara. And that was a great engineering feat as well because we never thought that they would be able to cut uh, through uh, the rock in the Guibara. Uh, and it's a tremendous road now onto Dr. Kelly's. And uh, I hope that they will soon be starting the stretch from uh, Dr. Kelly's through to uh, Glenties and on to Kilrain. Yeah. And of course, uh, it, it lifts my heart uh, to go take a run up to his and see the uh, exceptional work that's been carried out up there. It's powerful, Pat, to be honest with you, the work that's been done there. And I know a lot of people are, are very thankful of it with the Guibara Bends and what have you. But also, the, the added bonus to me is, personally, when you're travelling on that road now, either way, you seem to get a better sense of the views even. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. No, it's uh, the, the planning of it. You see, there are people uh, who take the view that when money's announced for a road, that you know it should start right away. But the amount of planning that had to go into that, uh, then they had to acquire the land 
and uh, they have to negotiate with all the landowners. All of that takes a long time, but hopefully in the next couple of years that there should be a, an excellent road right through from here to uh, to Glenties. Uh, and, of course, I was involved in the commencement of the road from Kilrain towards Frosses, but that's a different grade of road. That's a, a, pri- uh, a regional road, whereas this road is a national road, and I believe there's an obligation on uh, the department, uh, on the council and on the public representatives to try and ensure that further funds are provided for the road from Kilrain, uh, because that's the one that we use going to Donegal yes. Town. Uh, and I would like to think that that road could be extended. That would be fantastic to see too, Pat, and definitely has cut back on uh, a journey time as well when you consider now from Glenties to Dunlow. What people have, it's it's like a, it's you know it's a it's a fantastic piece. When it'll all be finished, Pat, it'll be it'll be brilliant. And um, when you look back at at your time in government uh, throughout the years, I suppose the failings of uh, government are, are are documented by the opposition, Pat, as you know yourself. But what would your so far? What would your be one of your biggest regrets, Pat? Have you looked back on it? That you're well, start away in, in seventy nine. There was a convention in seventy four for the local elections and uh, at that convention the delegates wanted uh, my brother Jim who was more involved in politics at that time in the 70s than I was he was very involved in the by-election campaigns in Donegal he decided not to run and I decided sometime afterwards that uh, we should have a councillor in the area and I allowed my name to go forward in 79 and the other candidates with me at that time were Shaman Ellis and Glenties and uh, Dr. Paddy Delap and Guidor, and, and we won three seats at 79. Uh, I had never, never uh, expected that I would be elected to the Dal a few years afterwards, but events uh, took over. And in 1980, uh, Joe Brennan, uh, who was at that time Kuncorla, uh, and he was a government minister for years before that and deputy leader of the party. Joe died unexpectedly in 1980 and the whole county was one constituency at that time and there was an obvious candidate. The obvious candidate was Clement Coffin, who was a councillor in the, in the uh, Donegal electoral area, uh, married to um, a, one of the daughters of, of Charman and um, he was elected with a very handsome vote in 1980. And then in 1981, the, constitu- the county was divided into two constituencies. So I contested uh, convention and both myself and Clement were selected to run. Uh, Donegal Southwest was a three-seater and uh, both of us were elected. It was a tough, tough campaign, uh, but I was elected at that time and I was very fortunate in 1981 uh, to, to become elected. Yes. And what a lot of your listeners will not know that we had a, a general election in 81, we had a, another election in February 82, and another one in November 82. Within a year and a half, we had three general elections. Yeah. Uh, but I was elected at all of them and then at all subsequent elections until uh, 1991. Uh, uh, and, of course, uh, I had to... Uh, retired from the council at that stage because I was appointed a minister of state in 1987 
I was a Minister of State from that to 94, uh, to, but in 94, uh, I was asked to go for Europe and I went for Europe in 94, but I, I held on to my DAL seat because there was a dual mandate in those days and I was in Europe then until 2002, uh, when Bertie, uh, asked me to return because we had lost the DAL seat in 1997. Uh, and I ran again in 2002, and I was in the Dal then until 2009, back as a Minister of State again, and uh, I was again asked to go to Europe because they felt that I was the one to win the seat, and I was there until uh, 2014, uh, and of course I went for the Dal in 2016 until I lost the seat uh, just this time last year. Yeah, you filled some so seats in your time, Pat. So yeah, far. I had a lot of elections, and in fact, uh, while I lost the European election, and there was about 500,000 votes, I lost it just by a mere couple of hundred votes, and the last election as well, just by a, a handful of votes, but I have the distinction of never being eliminated. Uh, I was elected all the times, and the two times I lost out, I was the last man standing, so yeah. that's... Uh, minimal. Minimal. Yeah. And Pat, when you look at all the different ministerial positions you've had, just to run through, you have three of them jotted down here. Uh, you're Minister of State at the Department of Marine from 87 to 89, 92, 93. Minister of State for the Gieltacht Affairs and Minister of State for Health, Promotion and Food Safety uh, as well, 2007, 2008. When you look back at them, a lot of positions you've had, Pat, was there any sort of role in particular in a ministerial position that you felt suited you better? Well, when I grew up in uh, the fishing industry, I always had a graph for the marine sector. And uh, Charlie Hawhey was teacher in 87, and he established a new department of marine. Uh, prior to that, it was fisheries and forestry, but Charlie appointed um, or established a department of marine, and Brendan Daly from Clare was minister, uh, and I was minister of state, and we worked very well with him. We worked hand in hand. Uh, and I must say that I enjoyed that period. It was a tough period because coming from uh, this area and uh, fishing, uh, there was lots of things that I would like to have done that I couldn't. And I, I'll never forget the summers when uh, salmon were in abundance here, being landed. <laughs> there were always issues about the Corvette. Uh, yes. And, of course, I was the first um, person to call if there was a problem. And, and of course, there are things as ministers you cannot do uh, a lot about. But uh, I was very disappointed uh, in when the government decided to uh, abolish the drift netting of salmon. I was totally opposed to that because salmon was important to the islanders. It was important to the small fishermen along the coast here helped to educate many as a family. And, uh, of course, pressure came on the government because the uh, stocks were uh, dwindling somewhat, but not by a lot. And I was anxious then that there would be a, a buyout system whereby those who wanted to get out uh, would be paid, whereas those who wanted to stay uh, would be allowed to stay. But no, uh, the government decided no. And, of course, there was a big lobby from the angling uh, fraternity uh, throughout, the, throughout the country who were saying that uh, it's affecting the drift netting at sea, is affecting the salmon, which are going up our rivers. Uh, but I only wish now a lot of those who are passed on, uh, I would like to debate it with them because there's no 
deep sea uh, fishing of salmon and there's still not a lot of salmon uh, going up the rivers. A lot of the damage has been done further out and the damage wasn't been done by the small fishermen. That there was uh, a big disappointment yeah, to me. Yeah, a big, big blow to, to Pat, to a lot of people. I, I had uh, very few, I had very, very few people uh, support me. Yes, and that would have been something when you look back on that, I suppose, a big regret too, but as, as you're kind of alluding to there, Pat, it was kind of out of your control. Well, it was, uh, but then when it comes to the other fish, whether it's the demersal fish, the white fish, or the uh, pelagic fish, the um, herring, the mackerel. Uh, the mackerel became uh, a very important uh, species uh, then. I uh, attended all the European Council meetings uh, in Brussels during that time and had a good relationship uh, with a lot of the ministers there. Uh, enjoyed that time. And then, of course, when I was uh, elected to the European Parliament, uh, I was a member of the Fisheries Committee and I would like to say that I was the sector's eyes and ears in Europe and I worked very closely with the sector and with the national organisations, particularly the Killybeck's Fishman's organisations uh, in uh, support. But it galls me now, of course, when I, I see what has happened over the last number of weeks with Brexit. I said uh, throughout my career in government or out of government, the one sector that paid too great a price for membership of the European Union was the fishing sector. Uh, and I say now, and it's the first time I've said it publicly, that uh, Brexit, uh, while the Brexit uh, arrangement uh, has been welcomed, uh, generally speaking, I say again, it's history repeating itself, that the fishing industry has paid too great a price for this. Uh, they have lost 43 million. That's the value of the fish that has been lost as a result of this. And that's only uh, the fish that are landed, whereas uh, that could be double that with all the value that could be added. Now, we're told that um, efforts will now be made to... Uh, secure greater quotas but uh, I'm around a long time and I, I hope that they're successful but I would be concerned. I believe the time to have ensured that we would not have been a loss was the week prior to Christmas uh, and not the weeks since then. But I wish the negotiators well uh, because it's good, it would be good for the industry. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the industry now. Uh, all of those boats um, Never got a penny in grant aid, uh, provided good employment, just not for those in the boats, but providing the fish uh, to the factories. And uh, there's a lot of people employed there in the process. It's a great shame too, Pat, when you study it, you know, that I suppose boats, you know, I suppose it angers a lot of fishermen really and truly when boats are coming from faraway countries are supposed are getting, I suppose, get more larger quotas off the coast of Donegal than the Donegal uh, fishermen themse themselves? Well, our quotas were li little enough up until 2020, but now uh, that mackerel is a major one and the leaf rubs of the prawns is a major one, and the fact that we were catching 60% uh, of our mackerel off the coast of Scotland, uh, then that we have now uh, a reduction of 25% in that. Uh, I do believe that had we threatened a veto on the Brexit arrangement, uh, things might have been different. But uh, I wish the uh, minister uh, and the government well, because they tell us that 
they're going to make strenuous efforts, but I believe uh, it'll need a lot of pressure now. It wouldn't have needed as much pressure had we decided we're going to pull our head before yeah. um, before Christmas. Of course, it's important that um, Brexit, there was a Brexit deal, we're told to simply, of course, uh, we could have been a lot worse off. Uh, I believe that the fish, fishing was uh, thrown under the bus. I suppose, Pat, when you look at it now, it's very hard for anybody to have a crystal ball, but in, uh, in all circumstances regarding Brexit coming down the line. But I suppose it, there is a possibility it, it'll, it might bring some positives for Ireland, Brexit as well. Would it possibly? Well, well, of course, we will remain now as the only Eng- English-speaking country uh, in the European Union. Uh, and, of course, uh, hopefully there might be uh, more uh, foreign direct investment from the likes of the United States uh, and other countries. So they want to come here because they will have direct access uh, into the European Union. Well, can say direct. Of course, we still have uh, times to go through the land bridge, but there are a lot of new services. But it's not all about goods. There's um, financial uh, financial services. There are a lot more services that can be provided. So it may well. Uh, but, of course, the, the, the um, area of the country that could benefit very well, despite what's been said at the moment about Article 16 of the Brexit uh, the Treaty, that uh, Northern Ireland, because they're both in the European Union and they're in the UK. So it'd be interesting to see how it develops there. But it's sad now, after all these years, that when uh, we're exporting to the UK or importing from the UK, that the paperwork, the tariffs, the taxes are uh, so high that it's making it more and more difficult. When you see the queues of trucks, I remember when we were uh, exporting fish and from the port on trucks, you had to stop at Lifford, yeah. customs documentation, stop at uh, Strabane, right through the UK, Dover to Calais or Harwich to the Hook of Holland. It was a nightmare until such time as we had the single market at midlife, uh, so much uh, bearable. But now we're back to that again. Yeah, sadly, and uh, it's a time that people don't really want to, to, to see. But uh, do you think that the Brexit, Pat, has brought on the, the likelihood in the future a, a more stronger possibility of a United Ireland, Pat? Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so, and I think that there should be an opportunity uh, given a border poll over the next um, five years or so. Uh, but, of course, in the uh, Good Friday Agreement, uh, it's a matter for the um, Northern Ireland Secretary of State to take a decision uh, in relation to a border poll, but I think the opportunity should be given. And, of course, the country is too small. It would be... Uh, we could have a greater uh, economy here if uh, there was no border. So I think it might expedite the question of a border poll and, please God, the unification of the country. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going to try to say. Hopefully that, you know, Brexit definitely has its negatives, but hopefully it could end up uh, having as many positives and uh, that's something we can hope for in the future. Pat, I suppose just to move on to different um a different topic, I suppose you're missing going to the live sport in Balbuffet and all these different venues, Pat, to watch Donegal playing. Yeah, it's a tragedy uh, that we're unable to follow both club club uh, and yeah. uh, county. Uh, apart from politics, my main interest was in, uh, in the GAA, 
and followed uh, Donegal uh, up and down the country. But of course, last year, even though we couldn't attend the matches, at least uh, most of the matches were streamed. Uh, a lot of them on TG Cahar or, or or Sky or or, or TE2. But now it looks as if it'll be well after Easter because before we have the opportunity again. And I can't totally understand how. The GA at County Levin cannot be included with the elite sports. When we think of uh, Ireland, we're uh, playing Wales last week. Playing, That's right. Uh, playing France and playing in the other, the, the Six Nations, that they can play. And it's, you know, it's contact football. And at the same time that uh, our county teams can't, it's sad because they're back in their communities, they're mixing with people. But so also are they... Uh, uh, are all of the other players and if we just watch and you know we're fortunate at the moment to be able to watch a lot of the premiership and a lot of the uh, FA games. Uh, yeah it gives us relief uh, and release uh, most nights most nights of the week and we're fortunate that we have that but it's not the same uh watching it no. as it has been there it's, and it's we were looking forward last year and we're just unfortunate that the outcome against Calvin. But hopefully that this year yeah. uh, still a good panel and a lot of young lads coming along and a good uh, awesome man at the helm. Hopefully right. that this year could be, could be a better year for us. The GA too proved last year, really and truly, Pat, I suppose that they were capable of uh, pulling out the schedule. Everything was, I was actually very impressed by how the whole thing was handled. But I suppose now um, things are there's there's this kind of a tightening down on on what's been considered elite sports, and I would say the GA have a have a rightful uh, feeling of sort of a grievance there that that's the case. Well, they've been very magnanimous about it all now, and they're putting the the health uh, of our people and our nation first. And I was listening to the president of the GA and the communications director during the week. Um, they're taking the advice of uh, those who are advising the the uh, government and I think they're hoping that by Easter they should be able to get off the ground and I sincerely sincerely hope that they can but the J are a great organisation that we found in every corner of the country and uh, make a great great, great contribution to yeah. uh, uh, social and uh, sport and sporting life uh, of the country, and there's so many. Uh, there, the clubs now, both all the clubs and the Rosses here in Western Egal, they have so many young people that are coming through, and it's good for them because there are so many attractions now for young people that weren't there when I was young and when we were playing football. There was nothing else. There was a, that or the cinema. Uh, whereas now with social. Uh, Media, there's so many attractions for young people. It's important to get them away from that. There's nothing wrong, but they should divide their time and uh, use a sport as an outlet uh, for these young people. That's important, uh, Pat. As, uh, as Brian, Father Brian Darcy actually said to me one time that GA is one of the most important institutes in Ireland and uh, in the sense of the way that it comes, brings local communities together. Oh, know? there's no doubt about it. And Father Brian, of course, is a... Uh, a Fermanagh man, a great, great J man. Meet him at all of the right. uh, uh, of the county games, and um, he's quite right. It's a great, great organisation, and uh, it's gone from gone from strength to strength. Yeah, tell me, Pat. Another to fire another couple of questions at the GA related. Um, you you're in a lot better position than me and a lot of other people to to have a have a say in this. Where would Michael Murphy sit for you? In, in the rank of great Donegal footballers? 
Oh, there's no doubt about it. When when you think of uh, football and success in Donegal, uh, Michael Murphy is uh, was is one of the greats. Uh, and of course, what's important now is that people in twenty, thirty years can look back and they can see it all on uh, on television. It's all. Uh, been relayed, but I think it was some of the great footballers uh, here locally uh, and in the county who played. And Donegal had no great success in those days, but this last, um, particularly since '92, that have a tremendous success, and we were getting through the Ulster finals. I remember as a young fella going to the first round of the Ulster Championship. You were nearly sure Donegal were going to be beaten until they started um, winning a few Ulster uh, championships. And ever since that, you know, we're expecting Donegal to be there, if not in the final and the semi-finals. So um, Michael Murphy, of course, would be uh, no doubt one of the greats. And he's a great leader. And uh, Jim McGinnis saw that in him when he appointed him captain at a very young age. And yeah. I, he must be the longest serving captain of any county uh, in, in the country. When you see, actually, when he came in, I think it was around 2007, around about that, he came into Championship Football for Donegal. And the one thing that struck me with Michael Murphy early on was it was like he had an old head on young shoulders from the from the get-go. He, he had something very special about him. There's no doubt. He's, he was a great leader and, and a great footballer and, you know, can kick with both feet and barely had to look up. He knew, I always knew wherever he was on the pitch, uh, where, yeah. where the goals were. He was an exceptional player and he, the, the, that man has such a heart. Uh, one minute you'd see him in the square uh, and the next minute the ball would come out and he'd be back in the other square, um, back along with the full-back assistant there. Uh, he was he, he was a great part. He's one of them kind of footballers that people would pay and uh, be gladly to pay their money to see. And uh, the, the, I would say, and uh, de- de- definitely speaking on my own behalf, anyway, he's one of them great players to, to watch. And uh, talk to me, Pat, uh, about uh, just you mentioned her there earlier in the interview. Your wife Anne and uh, how's Anne keeping? And how many years he is married now, Pat? Married just over we're married over thirty or thirty one years now. And it looked, it looked as when I was running around that I would never settle down, but I met Anne and, uh, uh, settled down sometime after that. And of course, I was in politics when I met Anne. So she, uh, was quite happy to, to, to work with me over the years. And, uh, I, I give a, so much of my time and so much of my weeks and months and years to politics, but Anne never complained. So at least she now has me at home uh, all the time. And of course, I must say that uh, we're enjoying life. Well, there's no saying, Pat, behind every good man is a good woman. And uh, I know yourself, I have to be thankful to yourself and Anne because you were a big listener to my country show there as well uh, for a good number of years. And uh, uh, very, very thankful for that. But uh, I suppose, Pat, you can't remember the first time you met Dan, can you? I can. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Well, of course, I knew uh, of the Gillespies and particularly the time that they were in prison from 1974 to 1983, both Anne and uh, Eileen. And I had some communications with them and then met Anne when she came back and uh, got to know them. And then it was at a Mary from Dunlow dinner one night that I met Anne and plucked up the courage to ask her yes. out and that was it, and we married uh, about six, uh, eighteen months afterwards. Ah, that's a good, a good story then, Pat. And uh, uh, it's, the time doesn't be long going by. The years don't be long going by. Oh, it's unbelievable. I can't believe it. That is forty over forty years since I was elected to the council. And let me say this, and it's thanks to the man above. I am as fit today as I was the first day that I went out canvassing in nineteen seventy nine when I knocked every door from. Uh, 
your country from Guibara to Crawley, and that's my first time out. And I must say, I'm very grateful that I have got good health, yeah. and I'm thankful. I'm thankful to the Lord for that. It's fitter you're getting, Pat, if anything, and with all them five Ks you're doing, and away from Pat, just to, to right before I round up the interview, Pat, uh, away from sort of the, the world of uh, working and what have you. What would you do to chill out, Pat? Apart from walking, do you do you watch much TV or that, Pat? Well, I do. I would. I would watch a lot of sport. Yeah. Uh, I would, preferably of the Gaelic football. And what I do like, of course, when I find now on, on TG Car uh, now and again, is some of the old games that it shows. You know, the ninety two, the two thousand and twelve. You know, in gold. I mean. That, that excites me as much as it, I was excited in Crow Park in 92 or, or 2012. And the lead, a lot of the other games, the Clarins and the Corks and the Downs and the Galways of the three in a row. Uh, I was in Galway at college during that time and, uh, I, I like watching that and I like watching some of the premiership, but yeah. there's nothing, there is nothing to compare with, with Gaelic football. No. Uh, when you consider it, uh, I often heard Brian McEniff, one of the successful Donegal footballers and managers say that he would prefer to go up to the, to the local pitch to watch an under 12 uh, Gaelic football game than he would to watch uh, some of the soccer matches. Well, it's more. Inter- so, there's something about it, definitely, and I would have to say this: there's something more entertaining about it because it's end to end, you know. And a soccer game could be nil nil after ninety minutes, you know. Of course, but of course, having said all that, my in soccer, my um, favorite team would be uh, Celtic. Of course, like many people from here. Yes. Uh, the reason behind that is in 1967. It was the only year that I uh, went, left Ireland to work, or left the Rosses to work, and I had Etchie Feet in 67, that's the year I did my leaving cert. And I went over to Glasgow to Annie, my late sister, and it was my tenth and band. They were living just off the Gargles, and both myself, my late brother Jim, and uh, Jim, uh, Patsy White and Joe White, who lived beside us in the main street in Oliver Ward, we all went to Glasgow, and it was at that time there was nothing else uh, but work and parkhead. So um, that was my interest, and that happened to be the same year that uh, Celtic won uh, the uh, European right. first British Cup. club to win the European Cup. The, the, the first is right, yeah. Because we heard often afterwards that the first English Cup was Man United, That's but right. they, they conveniently forgot to, to mention Celtic. But we were always um, every other Saturday when they were at home were uh, heading for Parkhead. And after that, uh, I had an interest, and we went over uh, when the opportunity arose to many of the New Year matches. And, of course, for years then, the supporters here went over regularly to uh, home games. But that was a great period, and uh, I like to watch Celtic uh, when they're on television. Yeah, not going too great at the minute, Pat, but... uh Definitely. Too many points behind Rangers at the moment, and they're not just going to catch up. So um, something has to be done. But of course, they were fortunate in the last number of years when uh, Rangers weren't playing in the Premiership. But now that they are there, um, it's competition as well. Uh, yeah. But hopefully, hopefully the next season will be a better one. Definitely would hope so, Pat. Well, Pat, that rounds up uh, this interview, and uh, I would like to thank you for your time. Uh, give me an interview episode number 40 a nice little milestone and uh, it's good to have you a part of it and nice to look back on a lot of history there in the, in the last hour and uh, again um, I'm very thankful for your time Very welcome uh, Tony and I'm delighted that you've given me the opportunity No problem Pat and all the very best to yourself and Anne Thank you Thank you very much 
Well, folks, that rounds up episode number 40 of the Time Out podcast with Mr. Pat the Cope Gallagher, and I hope that you did enjoy it, uh, as I did myself. And uh, keep a lookout for episode number 41 coming in the next week. But until then, uh, whatever you're doing, uh, stay safe, and until next time, it's goodbye. For more on the Time Out podcast, visit thetimeoutpodcast.ie. Thanks for listening.